Hello and welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moya Lady McLean and tonight I'm joined by Helena, aka No Justice MTG, or as your Twitter currently says, Snow Justice. <laughs> it is indeed myself. Thank you very much for the invite. As always, good to be here. Coming up later tonight, we'll be bringing you updates from Gaza as Israel bombs Rafa again after telling Palestinians to flee there, Keir Starmer's speech four years on from the 2019 general election, and who will you be voting for at the next general election? The discourse has begun. Let's go to our first story. The government's Rwanda bill is being debated in the Commons and will be voted upon very shortly. Now, this bill is the government's response to a Supreme Court judgment issued last month. It ruled that Rwanda was not a safe place to send asylum seekers as the risk of sending refugees back to a country deemed unsafe was too high. That is illegal under international law. The government's bill, if it passes, will declare Rwanda a safe country, contrary to the court's judgment. That means that a central issue in this debate is whether Parliament's power trumps domestic and international law. This is how Home Secretary James Cleverley introduced the bill to the Commons. I am confident, and and indeed the conversations that I've had uh, with the government's legal advisers reinforce my belief that the actions that we are taking, whilst novel, whilst very much pushing at the edge of the envelope, are within the framework of uh, international law. And that is important. That is important because the UK is a country that demonstrates to the whole world the importance of international uh, law. Uh, We champion that on the world stage and it's important that we demonstrate it. I'm gonna make further progress. I'm gonna make further progress. Um, Judges, of course, play an important role. But they are not policymakers, they should not be policymakers. And so when the courts find a particular formulation of policy unlawful, it is the job of politicians to listen to their views, respect their views, and find a solution. I will make further progress. Thanks to the efforts on the part of the UK government and the government of Rwanda, that is exactly what we have done in response to the uh, verdict from the Supreme Court. The new, the new treaty that I signed last week with Rwanda and the bill that accompanies it are game-changing. The principle of relocating people to a safe country to have their asylum claim processed there is entirely consistent with the terms of the Refugee Convention. Both the High Court and the Court of Appeal unanimously, unanimously confirmed this point. Cleverly is right. The court did rule that relocating asylum seekers and refugees to a third country is, in principle, lawful. But the in principle part is important. It's only lawful if their treatment doesn't violate international law. Now, in that speech, Cleverly also mentioned a new treaty with Rwanda. Last week, he travelled to Kigali to sign a new legally binding treaty with the Rwandan government. This treaty aims to address the criticisms made by the Supreme Court. But if the new treaty guarantees that Rwanda will respect international law, 
why do the Tories need to put through this bill? The answer is because they're in a hurry with a likely disastrous general election just around the corner. If the government were to try and send anyone to the basis to Rwanda on the basis of the treaty alone, it would certainly be tested in the UK courts. That would snarl the Tories' flagship anti-migration programme in a lengthy legal challenge, potentially creating yet another, yes, another, embarrassing failure just before the country goes to the polls. But if the Rwanda bill becomes law, it would bypass that possibility, essentially instructing British courts to treat Rwanda as a safe country in any challenge. The problem for Rishi Sunak is that the bill wouldn't apply to international courts like the European Court of Human Rights. That means that even if the bill passes, future flights could still be grounded by the ECHR. The government has accepted that possibility, though says the number of such cases would be low. This was illegal migration minister Michael Tomlinson on the Today programme. We have shut out virtually every single claim that is possible. What it is not possible to do, Justin, is to shut out every single claim, nor is that, nor would that be right. And let me give you two reasons. Firstly, because it would breach international law. That's not the right thing to do. Secondly, because it's not the British thing to do. Not even during the Second World War did we shut out claims to going to court, and nor can we and nor should we here. But what we should do is make sure that there are not spurious claims, and that's exactly what Clause 4 does. So your opponents on this being un-British, because they, they're absolutely plain about this. They say you need to be able to shut out all claims, personal claims here, otherwise it will gum up the courts. You're saying that they are un-British in their desire to do that. No, Justin, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that the way Clause 4 is drafted is an incredibly tight drafting. People will have to show compelling evidence. They'll have to show serious and irreversible harm. The circumstances in which that will happen are vanishingly thin. And what I've seen is, is under this modelling, under this process and the Illegal Migration Act, 80% of people uh, will be off within a month, within a matter of weeks. This is a tough piece of legislation, but I am respectful, I am listening, and of course I will continue to engage with colleagues right across the House. That just isn't good enough for some Tories, though. Enter the right-wing headbangers, hell-bent on causing trouble for Rishi Sunak as they try and force the UK out of the ECHR. Danny Kruger is chair of the new right of the right-wing New Conservatives group. He made this intervention. What really matters is whether it will work. And what working looks like is being able to, de to detain and remove sufficient numbers of migrants quickly enough, illegal migrants, that, uh, that they decide that the journey across the channel is not worth it. And that means ensuring that we have the capacity in the system. And I recognise the progress the government has made to improve capacity. But I think, as my right honourable friend says, we have significant concerns about the system getting gummed up with legal claims that are still allowable under the bill. And we're also concerned about the continued operation potentially of Rule 39 orders from the Strasbourg Court. But Mr Deputy Speaker, these practical problems, which I think are real and need to be addressed in the, in the further stages of the bill, derive from a fundamental point of principle. And I really do welcome the, uh, the noises that are made in the bill uh, that would gladden the heart of my honourable <laughs> friend, Member for Stone. It's rather like Bill Cash Bingo in this bill, there's notwithstanding this, and there's supremacy that, uh, and sovereignty the other, and it's all extremely welcome. Uh, nevertheless, these words do not apply in the crucial places. Yeah. It still rests the right of individual claims on international law, on the case law of the European Court, and of the operations of the ECHR in our own country.
Marc Francois is chair of the Eurosceptic European Research Group. Speaking on the eve of the debate, he said this about a meeting of the ERG to discuss the bill. The feeling very much in the meeting is that the government will be best advised to pull the bill and to come up with a revised version that works better than this one, which has so many holes in it. And as much as there was a consensus, Beth, that was the consensus. It might be better to start again with a fresh bill that is written on a different basis. Might be better to scrap the bill and start again, but better for who? Francois made that clear with a threat. We all want to stop the boats. There have been two legislative attempts at this already. The Nationalities and Borders Act, that didn't quite work. The Illegal Immigration Act, that didn't quite work. So this is kind of three strikes and you're out, isn't it? The ERG, as well as three other right-wing Tory groups, are currently meeting right now to decide whether to vote with or against the government on the bill. If they decide to vote for the bill, they're likely to demand amendments limiting the power of the ECHR before it comes back to Parliament for its final reading next year. But that would only create new problems for Sunak. On the other side of the Conservative Party are about 100 liberal One Nation Tories. Earlier, they threatened not to vote for the bill after it expressing concerns that it contradicted international law. But also speaking last night, Damien Green explained why they decided to support it. We decided that we will vote in favour of second reading. Uh, we think it's, it's time to support the government. Uh, and, and to address the point you've just heard very directly, uh, we say thus far and no further that if amendments are produced at later stages of the bill that break our international obligations or threaten the, the rule of law, uh, then we will vote against those amendments. So this is a tough swallow for, for people like you in the... One Nation group already, yeah, we, and you don't want it to go any further. Exactly. I mean, we can just about swallow this, and we heard from the Attorney General, uh, who is herself a member of the, uh, the One Nation group, uh, and she has explained why she thinks this is lawful and it's reasonable to do what the government is proposing. But uh, we all agreed that uh, this absolutely uh, could not go any further. So if, if the government is thinking of giving concessions to people... Well, they are, want, aren't they? I mean, because they're, they're going to have to, to get it passed some of those on the rise. Well, but, but they, what they need is a majority in Parliament, uh, and I think they'll have a majority in Parliament tomorrow uh, now, uh, and I hope that they will have a majority all the way through to third reading. I mean, this is chaos. It's like, it's like Brexit all over again, and you, you, you remember that, with different factions of the Conservative Party disagreeing with each other about the future and possibly a prime minister being the casualty. Well, it's, it's not quite as big an issue as Brexit, which was clearly uh, you know, following a, uh, a, a referendum. So uh, I think that it, it, it's not quite that comparison. But, but, you know, all sides of the party are going to have to swallow things that they may, may not be in their ideal world. Uh, and we have taken a pragmatic view that although we have genuine deep concerns about this, we can just about live with it. But what we can't live with is, is legislation that, squirrels off in the wrong direction as it goes through the committee stage and, and we won't have that. So, One Nation Tories will support this bill only it doesn't enter greater conflict, only if it doesn't enter greater conflict with international law. And right-wing Tories will only back it if it does. No wonder Alexander Brown of The Scotsman reported this. Even Tory MPs backing the Rwanda bill are unhappy and believe it won't survive at third reading. One tells me, 
All we've done is make a bigger problem for ourselves in January and all for a policy that's probably illegal. Number 10 has fucked it. Totally fucked it. The vote will take place after we go off air, but it's likely to be tight either way. To derail the bill, it'll only take 56 abstentions or 29 Tory rebels voting against. And that last figure drops to just 21 Tories voting against if the DUP join all other parties in voting against the bill, which they've indicated is likely. Significant human rights issues include credible reports of unlawful or arbitrary killings, torture or cruel, cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment by the government, harsh and life-threatening prison conditions, arbitrary detention, political prisoners or detainees, transnational repression against individuals located outside the country, including killings, kidnappings and violence. Helena, this plan is an albatross. Rishi Sunak seems desperate to keep around his neck. Why? Well, I mean, they've kind of cornered themselves into only adopting this kind of position. Stop the boats has been a central part of the Conservative Party's electoral rhetoric and their policy rhetoric for a very, very long time. It was one of Rishi Sunak's key pledges. Uh, we heard lots of th- stuff from pledges of current political leaders in this country. So it's interesting that there is at least one leader who's trying to stick to a pledge, if in the worst way possible. Now, it's appeasing huge swathes of the Conservative Party, who largely fall into two camps, who are desperate to get the Rwanda bill off the ground. Now, of course, one of these you've already alluded to is the kind of headbangers within the party, who want to get this plan off the ground because it explicitly goes towards their personal ideology, their desires to leave the European Convention on Human rights. And they oppose this current bill and are fighting the current leadership over it, as you say, for it essentially not uh, going further in lack of adherence to international law. I mean, literally to the point at which the Rwandan government might be pulling out of the deal if they go down the headbanger route. Because apparently Paul Kagame, of all the people, the man who is allegedly funding the March 23 movement in the in eastern Congo, destabilising the Kivu conflict, apparently he has more desire to adhere to international law than the current headbangers in the Conservative Party do. Now, the biggest thing that this current piece of legislation hinges on, that the right-wingers are really frustrated about, is the idea that some of the, of the migrants might have legal recourse to actually have their asylum claim heard. And they're right to be frustrated over this because they will win, right? If their asylum claim is heard, over 80%, I believe, from the figures I'd last seen, actually have their asylum claims accepted either first time round or on appeal. So they know that these are genuine, legitimate asylum seekers that they're trying to fly away to Rwanda. So they're really and truly lying over the potential illegality of these people under the illegal immigration title, because what they are is irregular migrants arriving by boat across the channel, who then claim asylum legally under our legal obligations under the the Refugee Convention. It is not indeed illegal for them to arrive by regular means and then claim that. They become illegal if their asylum claim is heard and it is denied, and then they become illegal. So they know that that any ability for there to be legal recourse for these asylum seekers would also derail their flagship policy. And so that's why they have a really big grievance with the current wording of the bill. There's another section of the Conservative Party who see this as being their electoral ticket to winning the next election. Now, it does show 
a level to which that they are far out of touch. I've heard multiple MPs take this line, including Jonathan Gullis, who said this on Politics Live, who said that if we don't sort out this Rwanda stuff, we, we, we can't win the next election. It's gone as far as the media. I heard Andrew Pierce was in discussion with Dawn Neeson over this, essentially saying this would be, this would be their, their electoral golden ticket to be able to reversing their failure over the elections. Yet, when you actually look at the statistics, you look at the polling, this isn't the most pressing issue for the vast ways of the country. The cost of living is. The only way that you would think that the Rwanda deal going through or not would be something that the electorate is more concerned over than whether they can put their food on their kids' tables is if you've never in your life ever had the precarity of not being able to clothe or feed your own children, which of course people of the Conservative Party never do. So it is a true a demonstration of just how completely out of touch the current government are, that they seem to be continually focusing on this very performative policy over the nuts and bolts of, of governance. And of course, there is some electoral outcome that they might be fearing, which is the rise of Reform UK, but Reform UK voters probably are already a, a lost cause at this point, regardless of what happens with Rwanda. They don't like the Windsor framework, which is Rishi Sunak's kind of flagship policy, that, policy success of this last government. So whether Rwanda succeeds or not, they're not going to win these voters back, most likely. I'd like to finish off and talk about the fact that really and truly, this whole thing, this whole problem with irregular migration is a problem of the Conservative Party's own making, right? Because there is one solution to this crisis, and that is opening safe and legal routes. The reason why people are coming across the channel is because we have no safe and legal routes, right? Those were all ripped up when we didn't renew them after legislation was changed post-Brexit, right? And all of this talk about having a deterrent, smashing the criminal gangs, etc., when all you could do is break the demand for those for the people smuggling across the channel by having a legal and safe route for people to be able to arrive by regular means. So they've created a manufactured crisis with a manufactured failure, and they have got themselves caught up in ridiculous psychodrama that is completely unnecessary. Unless, of course, you're somebody who really, really wants to leave the European Convention on Human Rights, in which case you're very glad that this conversation is happening now. I think that is very insightful. And the point about the uh, Reform UK voters, particularly so, because they're chasing after a meagre amount of voters there who mirror the ERG. They'll never be satisfied with the Tories' position until it completely mirrors the ERG's one. Um, and of course, if you're watching the VOD of this show later in the evening, then you'll know by now whether the bill has gone through. So do comment below your reaction on that. But if it passes, it will allow the UK to treat asylum seekers as badly abroad as it does at home. Because on the same day as Parliament debates that possibility, grim news has emerged from a British prison ship currently holding 350 asylum seekers. An asylum seeker has reportedly died by suicide aboard the Bibby Stockholm barge. The barge is docked in Portland, Dorset. Local volunteers called the Portland Friendship Group have been providing activities for the men housed on the barge. And one member, Heather, told the independent paper this. I got a call at 6.44am from one of the men on board saying that something really weird had happened and that there were police on the ship. It soon emerged that a man had killed himself. The guys have been telling me that the man was screaming, shouting and punching walls all night and the security officers were telling him to shut up. It's just typical of everything we've been hearing. I feel like it could have been a cry for help. Some of the men make best with what they've got. 
but others are lost souls. It was just all so predictable. Of course, there are rising rates that have been reported by NGOs of uh, death by suicide among refugees, but because the data collection on asylum seekers is so deliberately fragmented, we don't have exact figures, but it is a problem that appears to be increasing. And yet the government are doing nothing to look at potential preventative measures. Instead, they are passing more legislation to miserate the lives of asylum seekers further. Let's go to our next story. <sighs> Let's take a moment. It's four years today since the last time Labour fought and lost a general election. Yes, this is a traumatic day for many of us. And Keir Starmer has marked it with a speech designed to ensure that he won't be commemorating a similar loss as leader in years to come. He started by attacking internal Tory drama. I'm afraid the circus is back in Westminster again today. And, and people often say to me, all this is great for you, isn't it? But I have to say, honestly, no. Because it's not just politics, is it? It's the whole country. We're all stuck in their psychodrama, all being dragged down to their level. And that's what they just don't understand. While they're swanning around self-importantly with their factions and their star chambers, fighting like rats in a sack, there's a country out here that isn't being governed. A country that needs leadership. Public services crumbling. High streets stalked by antisocial behaviour. Families weighed down by the burden of higher mortgages. Nurses, teaching assistants, builders, drivers, shop workers, carers, people who never before missed a payment in their life, working harder than ever for the wage in their pocket who now dread the thought of Christmas shopping, picking up little presents for the stocking before quietly putting them back. Now, each and every one of these problems would be bad enough for Britain. But when they come together like this, they merge into something bigger and more insidious. A sense that nothing works, that we're going backwards, a country in decline. It's a strong opening and it, it certainly speaks to how a lot of the general public feel, at least from my own experience. Starmer went on to say that Britain needs a, quote, frank hope and a decade of national renewal. Then he took some shots at previous Labour Party iterations. Cast your mind back to the last election. Four years ago today, December the 12th, 2019. The worst defeat for Labour since 1935. Working people up and down the country looked at my party, looked at how we'd lost our way, not just under Jeremy Corbyn, but for a while, and they said, no, not this time. You don't listen to us anymore. You're not in our corner. You don't fight for our cause. And they were right, weren't they? We'd taken a leave of absence from our job description, reneged on an old partnership, the labour bargain, that we serve working people as they drive our country forward. And everything I've done as leader, every fight I've had, 
has been to reconnect us to that purpose, to make sure we never put working people in that position again. It's interesting because this obviously is the same shtick Rishi Sunak pulled at the 2023 Tory conference, slagging off previous versions of his own party to position himself as the change candidate. Given Starmer is trying to model himself as a Tony Blair 2.0 with Peter Manderson on the blower 24-7 to boot, it's a bit rich. But Starmer says he has led a clear change with Corbyn's Labour. A Labour party that has broken new ground in our relationship with business that gets the value of private enterprise, understands working people want success as well as support, that borders must be secured, economic stability is the foundation for everything, but that in tough times like ours, we must use the power of government carefully but decisively to stoke the fires of renewal. The pride and purpose I know burns inside communities like this. Labour does indeed have its closest relationship to big business for nearly 10 years. Donations from wealthy individuals outstripped trade union contributions to the party's coffers last year. Backers now include supermarket tycoon David Sainsbury, the founder of repairs company Autoglass, and the former chair of Lord's TSB Bank. These three donors all ceased contributions to Labour when Jeremy Corbyn was leader. Now, what could have put them off? Surely not the proposed increases on corporation tax or the pledge to tax certain buying and shelling of shares. It must have been the free broadband. Starmer didn't dwell too long on the past, though. He also wanted to talk about the messy present, namely the Rwanda plan. A policy that they knew would never work. And yet the charade continues. £290 million of taxpayers' money, your money, spent on an exercise, and a failed one at that, in Conservative Party management. And of course, not a single person has been sent and even if we did send people, we would pay for their hotels and upkeep and we'd have to resettle refugees from Rwanda in exchange. That's the deal that they are voting on today. To be fair, you do have to credit the Rwandan government. They certainly saw Rishi Sunak coming. <laughs> stopping the boats means stopping the gimmicks. And if they can't find a way to do that, if they can't find a way to focus on the job, fix our problems without breaking international law, unlike every government before them, then it's time to stand aside and let the Labour Party do it for them. That goes for Brexit and legal migration as well. I voted Remain. There's no shame or secret in that. But I know the vote to leave was a vote for change, and change at a much deeper level than our trading relationship with the European Union. It was a vote to say our country's got its priorities wrong, a vote for democratic control, but also for public services you can rely on, opportunities for the next generation, communities you can be proud of, an economy that works for people like you. Well, this is what the Tories failed to understand about it. Yes, Brexit was a vote for lower immigration. Of course it was. But it was also a vote 
for that idea that we need to renew, that hard work should be rewarded with a wage people can live on. And for the Tories, that's the rub. Seven years they've had to make Brexit work, but every time they run up against a choice between raising skills and working conditions or issuing more visas, they choose the higher migration option. And it's not an accident. It's who they are. Can I just shock you? I don't think this is a bad speech, especially if you read it, you know, written down. In fact, personally, I think it's pretty adept. Starm and his speechwriters have managed to articulate the feelings of decline and stagnation that do plague a hell of a lot of the British public. And he's not fully given into the bizarre Tory voter baiting he so often does at the moment. Said he's redirecting that narrative around Brexit from migration to a desire for change and redistribution. And Starmer finished off with some nods to policy pledges. If you voted for the Conservatives four years ago, and you're still waiting for the change you demanded, if you believe working people deserve a new foundation of security, with rising home ownership driven by a reform planning system, a new national wealth fund investing in the jobs of the future, cleaner bills guaranteed by clean British energy and technical excellence colleges training our kids in the skills we need. If you think work should pay fairly, that practices like zero hour contracts and fire or rehire should be scrapped, and that we need a solution for sectors like care that isn't just exploiting immigrants on low pay. If, in short, you want lower migration and higher wages, or even if you just want a government committed to economic stability, the rule of law, good public services, restoring Britain's standing, making family life more secure, and putting the country first, then I say again, this is what a changed Labour Party will deliver. You won't get it from a Tory fifth term, only a change of government can bring change to our country. Certainly not the full social democratic agenda promised four years ago, but he's also noticeably jettisoned some of the more hardline recent Labour rhetoric around penny pinching and fiscal responsibility. There was also an interesting section, which we didn't include, where Starmer nodded to more devolution, decrying the, quote, hoarding of power in London. If I were to sum up this speech as if I was a politico wonk, I would say it's a red wall appeal that actually focuses on the real issues for the most part. But if I was to sum it up as a, the Navarra media contributor that I am, I would say it's an attempt, a meagre attempt, but an attempt to actively win voters to Labour rather than rely on Tory unpopularity. Perhaps someone is scared by the recent polls which suggest Tory voters leaving the Tory party rather than coming to Labour is behind Labour's massive jump. But the question is, as it always is, like Starmer's 10 pledges or the eroded 28 billion a year for green causes, is all of this just talk? It is worth pointing out that he is correct to say that we need a decade of national renewal. This has been incredibly clear. I've been saying this, that we need bold policy and bold, actual, real, material change to the functioning and the structure of our country to be able to actually create the kind of renewal that we saw post-1945. And this is exactly why Keir Starmer brought up Clement Attlee in his article in the Telegraph, the very infamous one where he said that also Thatcher brought 
a, a level of national change, created a completely different paradigm that we all lived in. And I think that's exactly why he's created this new rhetoric, this different rhetoric that we've seen where you actually can't just offer managerial continuity politics and say that you'll just be better at doing what the other party was doing themselves already and expect people to vote for you for, without any other reason to do so, right? So it's clear he's trying to actually, as you say, win people over, knowing that when you actually look at his personal approval rating, it's incredibly low. It's very, very low for somebody who's not even in power yet. So he's not really looking like somebody people are voting for out of, out of choice rather than out of necessity. So what that comes down to is, well, is he actually offering us national renewal? But, and I would unfortunately say, I think what we really have is style over substance. For all of this rhetoric, this strong rhetoric over needing actual change, needing to create a new Britain, we're not getting it, right? Is the change we need on public spending, for example, you talk about devolution, like so councils being able to do more things as local authorities, unless you're giving them more money to do that, they're not going to be able to do it. They had their bunch of budgets cut by like 40% since the austerity period in 2010 onwards. And based upon Labour's own fiscal rules, unless they're raising more money through taxation for extra day-to-day -day spending, they literally cannot increase councils' budgets, right? So when it comes to a Although the rest of the policy went, basically the only tax increases is the non-DOM tax status and private school fees, which have basically already been apportioned off to an NHS workforce plan and free breakfast clubs. The ability to actually look at any idea of real fundamental change is just there. It's completely lacking. It really is just managerial neoliberalism tinkering around the edges. And so this really feels like a lot of empty rhetoric to me. Now, what was touched on in the clips that we saw was this idea that Labour has lost its way. It had abandoned the Labour bargain, quote unquote, to be able to be the party of working people for working people, the voice of the trade union movement within Parliament to be able to represent working people's interests. And he said that Labour had lost its way even before Jeremy Corbyn, according to his own personal idea of what would actually constitute that. And I think it's true. Labour did lose its way before Corbyn. And, but it wasn't Corbyn's politics that was what was losing its way from the Labour bargain. It was Blairism. Blairism was the abandonment of Labour's core principles, right? It was a function of Blair wanting to be able to appeal to too wide of a section of the electorate in a post-Thatcherite world, appealing to the aspirational middle-class people, the metropolitan types who might be you know, progressive on social policy, but want to see their house price continually increase whilst watching public services be spent on, as long as it's keeping off the books with PFIs, they didn't really mind that that was terrible economic policy. There's a really famous speech now, or infamous in some respects, but I fundamentally agree with the point of what was being made by Eddie Dempsey during a Labour Leave conference, where he was talking about this electoral calculus that Labour bigwigs engage in, where they will take working people's votes for granted and say, well, actually, this is part of our our calculus we've made. Well, we, we, have, we can rely on working people to vote for us because they've basically got nowhere else to go, right? And so we'll focus on the middle class people with Thatcherite policy during the Blair years and the kind of people who were abandoned during that era, they turned towards the far right. And Eddie Dempsey made that point in that speech. And that's what happened. We saw the rise of the BNP as the Blair and Brown period lost out to the right wing, as we got, votes got cut into from that area because they felt like a metropolitan um, middle-class kind of bourgeois party didn't represent their interests anymore. After all, Blairism was what 
continued and accelerated the deindustrialization of these northern red wall communities, right, who were vehemently anti-Thatcher, but turned towards somebody like, for example, Boris Johnson, except they were still going blue, even up to 2015, right? A lot of these blue wall, red wall constituencies, sorry, were turning blue and becoming less labor up until 2015, but with the exception of 2017, where the vote share for labor massively increased in these communities, right? So it's not Corbyn who broke this bond between working people and labor. It was Blair and Blairism, right? Which is where we saw the kind of voting patterns within the 2010s and why Ed Miliband ultimately failed in 2015 as well. So if you're saying, well, that's the reason why Labour feel like they lost their way, that stands to reason the discussion that we should now have is, do Labour actually now stand with workers in the way that Keir Starmer is trying to say that it does, recreating that Labour bargain? And well, we do have some reasonable policy, ending zero-hour contracts, better terms and conditions, increased rates of sick pay, for example, in their new deal for workers, courtesy of uh, Angela Rayner when she was in her position as Shadow Secretary of State for the for future of work. But that seems to really be it from what we're seeing, because we've not seen the grand-scale policy in changing the public sector for the better, arguably for the worse in some cases when you look at what we're streeting something. And when you actually look at the relationship with the trade union movement, who they're supposed to represent, about apparently not as much anymore, though, seeing as they're being more funded by the wealthy, they literally walked out, in some cases, of the National Policy Forum meeting. I know there's GMB and Unite did this because they're having too much of a fight with the Labour leadership over their watering down of their commitments to workers' rights. And when you put that on top of the fact that Keir Starmer is in this position because of hundreds of thousands of pounds of let's say, dodgy money that was given to Labour together that was reported on by Gabriel Pogrand in The Times by essentially venture capital and private equity who put all of this funding for Labour together to be able to usurp the leadership of the Labour Party to input people like Rachel Reese and Lisa Nandy are part of that caucus into leadership roles despite standing on a platform against that. And we saw the Portland pamphlet that Alistair Campbell wrote the foreword to, which literally says that businesses should engage with members of the PLP to be able to influence Labour policy. It's essentially saying that the current Labour leadership want to see some level of lobbying happening to their own MPs from the private sector. So it looks to me like, no, we do not see a party that is currently standing with working people. And I thought I would leave this section with a quote from Sharon Graham, which was the head of you, the general secretary of Unite the Union, that was on Radio 4 a few months back. There is already a party of business in this country. It's called the Conservative Party, and we don't need another one. Let's go on to our next story. The Gazan Health Ministry has said that in the last 24 hours alone, 207 Palestinians have been killed, with more thought to be buried under the rubble. It's also recorded 326,000 cases of infectious diseases in camps full of displaced people. In a region starved of food, fuel and shelter, and with a barely functioning health system, disease may kill as many Palestinians as Israel's bombs. Amid the spread of bloody diarrhoea, jaundice and respiratory infections, the World Health Organization has described the situation in Gaza as, quote, catastrophic, and yet Israel continues to attack the Strip's few remaining hospitals. In the north of Gaza, Israeli forces have raided the Kamal Adawan Hospital, according to reports. Journalist Hani Mahmoud filed this report for Al Jazeera. 
There are more disturbing reports, confirmed reports of Israeli military storming Kamal Adwan Hospital. It's important to point out Kamal Adwan Hospital is a mid-sized hospital, the only remaining health facility in the northern part. And within the past few days, it came under heavy bombardment and airstrikes and tanks, destroying the vast majority of its facilities and all the major roads leading to it. Now, there are people who took it as a refuge, a shelter running away from the uh, uh, the air strike, relentless bombardment in their neighborhoods. Now, we're talking about hundreds of people inside the hospital, including the medical team and those who were uh, brought as injuries and the patients in the in the hospital and hundred other of evacuees inside the hospital. The disturbing reports what we got from uh, Kamal Adwan Hospital that the Israeli military on loudspeakers uh, ordering the administration of the hospital to hand in all the guns that the security personnel at the hospital uh, carry in order to protect the, the hospital. Uh, they were uh, collected by the Israeli military. Now anyone above the age of 15 was also ordered to start evacuating in the hospital with their hands above their, their head. The Israeli military started to blindfold uh, those uh, men inside the hospital, round them up inside the court of the hospital. So far, the situations are very, very difficult for people inside. Al Jazeera has also reported that medics have been killed inside that hospital. And that description of the IDF rounding up men and blindfolding them is, of course, a reminder of the scenes we saw in northern Gaza last week. This footage shows a large number of Palestinian men stripped and forced to sit on the street in Bet Lahaya, northern Gaza, under threat of gunfire. Israel has actually come out now and said to Al Jazeera that they don't want images of these men who are being detained circulated anymore, even though they leaked them in the first place, which only leads to the conclusion that the PR war is backfiring. They thought that those images would make people think that they were operating uh, raids against Hamas members, but I think everyone can see what's actually going on there. And yet the US continues to back Israel. It's their staunchest ally and the only member country to vote against a UN Security Council resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire. The US has so far refused to criticise Israel's treatment of Gazan citizens, but last night US government spokesperson Matthew Miller was pressed for a reaction by Sky's Mark Stone. As I said, we found them deeply disturbing. I just don't have a, 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 any additional comment on but, it. But can I follow up? Is, is there any circumstance in which those sorts of images would be acceptable? Again, uh, we found them disturbing. I don't want to, to, to discuss other potential um, uh, circumstances. We have found the, them uh, disturbing. We've asked them to clarify the circumstances of these detentions, and we're going to um, uh, look to them to provide those details. And, and how long will you wait? Again, we're, that is how long it will take is a question for them. We have pressed them for details about these circumstances. We expect them to provide. Okay, because the reason I ask is because on, on many different um, moments uh, over the course of the past however many weeks it has been, We've heard the American administration say we've asked for, you know, we're concerned or we've asked for clarification, we've asked for more detail. And yet the moments keep coming. And I wonder, um, 
Is it actually the case that you are behind the scenes actually not that worried about Israel's tactics, its military tactics so, on the ground? So or, let, me, let me just... Or, let me, or, or have you lost all leverage with, with so, a close ally? So uh, I appreciate the gotcha nature of the question. It, it, let, me, no, no, let, me, let me just... Genuinely, let me, it's not. That, it's, it's, it's not. Sure. I'm not no, no, Gen I want to be clear. Genuinely, no, no, genuinely it is, but that's okay. It's, I, it's no, fair. No, it's I, not I take, okay. I'm not, it's I, not a gotcha if moment. You, if you stop, I'll answer the question. I answer questions of, of all types. Uh, I will say that you should take our words at face value. When we're, say, we're concerned about something, it's because we're concerned. There's a lot of concern coming out of the US right now, especially after a Washington Post investigation found that Israel had used white phosphorus bombs supplied by the US to injure at least nine civilians in Lebanon in October. The paper reports this. A journalist working for the Post found remnants of three 155mm artillery rounds fired into Daria near the border of Israel, which incinerated at least four homes, residents said. The rounds, which eject felt wedges saturated with white phosphorus that burns at high temperatures, produce billowing smoke to obscure troop movements as it falls haphazardly over a wide area. Its contents can stick to skin, causing potentially fatal burns and respiratory damage, and its use near civilian areas could be prohibited under international humanitarian law. The article goes on to say this. Lot production codes found on the shells match the nomenclature used by the US military to categorize domestically produced munitions, which show they were made by ammunition depots in Louisiana and Arkansas, Arkansas in 1989 and 1992. The light green colour and other markings like WP printed on one of the remnants are consistent with white phosphorus rounds according to arms experts. Sorry, how evil is it to mark white phosphorus with WP? In response to that report, US National Security Spokesperson John Kirby said this. We've seen the reports, certainly concerned about that. We'll be asking questions to try and learn a little bit more. Obviously, any time that we provide items like white phosphorus to another military, it's with the full expectation that it will be used in keeping with those legitimate purposes and in keeping with the law of armed conflict. My ass. Also responding to that report, Israeli Defence Minister Yoav Gallant said this. The IDF and the entire security establishment acts according to international law. This is how we have acted and how we will act. The IDF acts according to international law. What international law is that. The one that allows the forced transfer of civilians, collective punishment, ethnic cleansing. I guess it's the same international law that allows the imprisonment and the interrogation of children. In the occupied West Bank, Israel has been building up its military presence and conducting raids and airstrikes in the territory. 270 Palestinians in the West Bank have been killed by the IDF or settler paramilitaries since October 7th in the last 24 hours. 50 people have been detained in West Bank towns, including children. Kareem was one of them and told Al Jazeera his story. Kareem Hawanmi is 12. He's already been a detainee and now a free prisoner. Handcuffed and transferred between Israeli interrogation centers, an experience way beyond his years. I saw a detainee with blood on his face. They kept me in a room, threatened me and showed me two videos. They said if you throw stones at the Israeli soldiers, this will be your fate. I asked if these are the videos. He says yes. They show the moments 8-year-old Adam El-Ghul and 15-year-old Basil Abu wafa were shot. At home, he's received as a hero. He shows relatives the marks of mistreatment. 
but some of them cannot be seen. I asked the Israeli captain how could he interrogate a git without his parents or a lawyer. 17 years old must be accompanied by a lawyer. Imagine what it's like for a 12-year-old. They took him without me, his father or a lawyer. The family said the Israeli soldiers raiding the Jalazon refugee camp came to Karim's grandmother looking for him. When they came to detain the other teenagers, they searched his uncle's house and the other uncle's house too. We asked the army, what do you want? And they said, Karim, Karim, all of this for Karim, this little boy? The next day, Israeli interrogators told his fathers to hand Karim in or else. Israel arrests children as young as 12 and prosecutes them in military courts. The main charge is throwing stones. The U.S. appears to be prepared to tolerate any number of crimes committed by Israel against the Palestinians. But some companies seem to be getting the message that associating their brands with all this suffering might be bad for the bottom line. The Palestinian Solidarity Campaign has long campaigned for companies to divest from their investments in Israel, called BDS. And now, in one case at least, it seems to have paid off with the PSC posting this. Breaking. Following years of campaigning, including sustained actions by PSC branches at Puma, have been forced to end its sponsorship of the Israel Football Association. This is an important victory that shows the power of the solidarity movement. We didn't let Puma rest. Together we caused Puma to lose millions worth of contracts and sale, causing such damage that it had to finally give in and end its support for Israel's colonization of Palestinian land. On its part, Puma has said the decision was not related to BDS or Israel's bombing of Gaza, but was taken a year ago. In fact, they seem to imply it was because the Israeli national team is shockingly bad at football. But it's very interesting timing, some would say. Boycott, divest sanctions, which the government is trying to outlaw. It works. Now let's go on to our next story. The date of the next general election has yet to be announced, but election discourse is in full swing. Navarra is part of it, I'm afraid to say. And voting intentions are beginning to be declared. Comedian Ava Vidal appeared on LBC's Cross Question this week. She was asked whether she'd vote for Labour in the next election. And this is what she said. Labour are not actually going to change anything. Everything that the Conservatives have already done, when you ask Keir Starmer, are you going to pull back on this policy? Are you going to pull back? It was like, no, I'm not. So, so at the end of the says, day, no, we're going to no, have these... No, no, quoting his new hero. We're going to have... Well, exactly, Margaret Thatcher, oh. for goodness sake. I like my Conservatives to be honest, <coughs> mean-spirited, and to just be honest about who you are. I like my Conservatives to be Conservatives. I don't want Conservatives in, you know, with, with a red rose. I... I'll keep the Conservatives that we have, thank you. But you will vote for Keir Starmer. Absolutely you'll vote, not. You're not going to vote Labour? No. No way. But, I mean, Absolutely you, you would have done if Jeremy Corbyn had still been leader, wouldn't you? Because yes, you're, you're a bit of a Corbyn I'm not a bit. Fan. You see, the thing is, people call you a Corbyn well, that's, fan. That's what be, your Wikipedia says, To be anyway. disparaging. I don't know who wrote on that. They've written <laughs> some awful things about me. You know, but I I honestly, right, I just don't see the difference between Keir Starmer and I'd rather keep the Tories that we have, thank you. So you're going to vote Tory? I'm not so, going to vote Tory. I'm just not going to do What are you going to do? I'm going to do exactly what we did in COVID. I'm going to stay home. Strong words there. And the rest of the panel were certainly shocked. 
Oh no! Come, oh, come on! I'm not voting. This, no, I'm this, not. You're politically not. engaged. How can you not vote? Even if because you go down I, and support the ballot paper. If you can't offer paper. me an alternative to what we have already, let's keep what we have. I really don't care. Labour need to understand. You have to be an alternative to the Tories. You can't just be Tory light. That is the problem that we're having. Labour have done so many things, and I, I don't even want to get into it because I I know the sighs that are going to come from that way. But I will just say it very quickly: <laughs> what they've done to the Muslim community, what they've done to the Black community, it's been you, they've taken our votes for granted and we are going to show you. Actually, your, our votes for you are not guaranteed. We can suffer. We're from a people. Listen, my ancestors suffered. It's handed down. We've got genetic memory. I can stay and suffer under toys for quite a lot longer. We'll vote green then. No, I haven't got a green candidate anymore. Well, well, you will have. Well, go and spoil your ballot paper. At least make an effort to take part in the democratic process. What? You know, there are people... When I can stay in and watch Netflix. There are I think this is really interesting because Ava's position is the embodiment of political disengagement. She's totally disillusioned. The way she points at Beth Winter, I don't think she knows who she is and what she believes in, but she just assumes because she's Labour, she'll be dismissing what she says. Do I totally agree with Ava's position? No, but I can understand it. What's even more interesting is she's up against Ian Dale, who represents the sort of moderate Tory who still has faith in parliamentary processes and thinks all that's wrong with what's going on is a couple of rogue actors within the party. And he cannot understand why someone would be so disheartened that not only do they not vote, they stay home. They don't even spoil their ballot. He can't understand the logic behind that way of thinking. And neither of these camps are trying to understand each other. Um, when pressed, Ava explained more of her reasoning. If we've got a political party that was supposed to be our natural home, and that political party is doing things to get people, you know, they're calling themselves a broad church, and then they're, they're removing people with certain views, why should they, why well, should they participate in their own humiliation? And get thrown out. That's all that happens. Keir Starmer has expelled how many people now? It's ridiculous. I mean, people feel like they can't be a part I mean, Beth Winter, and, uh, you, you must be sitting there it's thinking, true. oh my God, if we can't get the likes of Ava to, yeah. Ava to vote for us, we're in real trouble. I, I think it's really important for our leader, Keir Starmer, to listen to, to Ava and... Ava. All the other Ava, sorry, and all the other um, possibly former members of the Labour Party who have now left. There are... Um, a number of us who are hanging on in, um, who I joined the party because of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell back in 2016 and was elected on that manifesto. And I still stand by that manifesto of 2019. Um, and we are pushing within the party for those progressive policies to be in the next manifesto for the next general election. But it is very concerning, you know, and those views are shared by many, many people up and down the country. And our party does need to take note and listen to those views. That was Beth Winter at the end, Labour MP for Coonan Valley. Uh, Helena, are you voting Labour at the next election? What did you make of Ava's speech? Well, full disclosure, I am a paid up Green Party member, so I am very slightly biased on this issue. So I will not be voting for the Labour Party at this next election. And I will adv actively advocate for other people also not to vote for the Labour Party at the next general election. Keir Starmer was very open talking about the left of the Labour Party. He said, the door is open and you can leave. So I did. I did leave, right? And the, the, the really salient point at the end there, where she says, oh, well, why would I stay and fight just to get kicked out? Because that's what happens, right? You disagree with the Starmer diktat, you get kicked out, right? The Politburo excommunicate you at this point, essentially, right? There is no mechanism for pushing the Labour Party 
to the left from the inside. It's clear they don't care about what the membership think. In that Portland pamphlet that I referenced earlier, they already have said that they believe that engagement with the membership is something to be managed rather than encouraged. They don't care about what the membership think. They have their own political dictat and they're sticking with it. And I don't believe in that, so I'm not going to vote for it. It's incredibly simple. Right now, the usual response you get to this is, well, why don't you vote tactically, right? If you vote for the Green Party, you're wasting your vote, quote unquote, because you're not voting for one of the top two parties. And first of all, I believe voting is a case of utility, right? I believe there is utility in voting for the Green Party because of how similar the Conservative and the Labour Party are at the moment. And I'm going to give credence to the Labour Party's Conservative bent by voting for them further. But even so, the idea that you only vote tactically based upon who can win your constituency is under the premise that your vote can't influence policy unless that candidate wins the election. And we have a permanent case of that not being true, right? You look at the UKIP parties, or the, or the United Kingdom Independence Party, rather. you look at UKIP, in the period up to 2015, where they continually ate into the Conservative Party's percentage of the vote. And David Cameron was scared. And so he offered the referendum policy to try and stop them from bleeding votes to the right wing. It's happening with Reform UK, literally influencing the policy that's being voted on as we speak by cutting into the Conservative Party's vote share and forcing them to be able to actually move towards where, what they want to vote for. And that's what we should be doing with the Labour Party, right? UKIP won one seat because Douglas Carswell defected and they got the Brexit that they were campaigning for. And we can do the same thing from the left. So look, if you're not going to take our vote as something that you would like to actually offer us on policy, then we will leave. We won't engage with your party anymore and we will vote for somebody else. And you can win us back by moving on policy. Otherwise, we'll stay where we are and you will risk losing huge swathes of our vote. It's very, very simple. And on top of that, this idea that we need to have a, essentially a conservative looking party to win people's votes is essentially a large form of capitulation from the current Labour establishment, right? Because politics, politics is about narratives. It's the narratives that you can spin and the narratives that you can take into an election. We've had 13 years of failure, almost 14 at this point of continued failed governance. And the line that people go with is that the governance has failed specifically because the Conservative Party are in power. And that's not true. It's not failed because the Conservative Party are in power. It's failed because the Conservative Party have been implementing the ideology of conservatism right? Austerity, conservative ideology, massive failure. Privatisation, conservative ideology, massive failure. The hard Brexit deal that we gotten was the spearhead of the Brexit campaign. Conservative ideology, massive failure. We have a litany of failures, not of conservative party policy, of conservative party people being in charge, but of the conservative party implementing their chosen ideology. If you're a Labour Party leader and you can't campaign on not conservative ideology, if you can't make a positive case for a change of ideology rather than a change in management, you failed. I'm sorry, you've massively failed. And unfortunately, you can't make me vote for something that I fundamentally disagree with. And so unless they change, I will be very happily staying with my party of choice, which is the Green Party at the next election. Thank you so much, Helena, for joining me tonight. It's been a pleasure as always, Moya. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, it's been uh, definitely been an interesting one tonight.
<laughs> it has. And I don't think these themes are going to weigh, going away. Don't think these themes will be going away anytime soon. Do you come back tomorrow when it's likely we'll be discussing any fallout from the Rwanda bill vote and COP28? For now, you have been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.